0: this week's episode of the Leeds business podcast we speak to linda plant better known as the queen of mean from the apprentice she tells us her five top tips for running a successful business tells us all about how she sold a business and then bought it back for hardly any money 18 months later and lifts the lid on all the goss behind the scenes on the apprentice before we get into that don't forget to subscribe at leedsbusinesspodcast.com to ensure you don't miss another episode. Let's talk to Linda. Welcome to the Leeds Business Podcast. Today, we've got the Queen of Mean from The Apprentice, Linda Plant. Hi, Linda.
1: Hi, Phil.
0: Do you like being called the Queen of Mean?
1: Um, Well, it seems to be uh, my persona now. Uh, I don't mind being called the queen of mean, as long as people, when they meet me, realise I'm not that mean.
0: (laughs) Right. Okay. Good stuff. Good stuff. So, we're on the Leeds Business Podcast. We talk to Leeds Business Owners. Why are you on the Leeds Business Podcast, Linda?
1: Well, because I'm a Leeds girl, born and bred, and lived there for... um, over 30 years of my life so I think I'm northern through and through really although I live in London now I'm definitely a northern girl
0: fantastic fantastic and your first business was called Honeysuckle and it started tell us where it started tell us tell us the story tell us where it started and and the story of it
1: Well, my first foray into business was not honeysuckle. It was on a market stall in Dewsbury when I was a very, very young girl working for uh, my mother and father who had a stall simply to make ends meet. Um, And I then progressed from, we then progressed uh, from the market stall. I was at the time probably under 13, but loved it. Loved, knew, knew right away that business and trading would be something I'd love Uh, We progressed from that one market stall in Dewsbury into uh, going into Sheffield, into an indoor market there. Um, There was no Brent Cross and White Rose in those days, but there was in Sheffield an indoor market called Castle Market. And it was the only version of what I can describe as one of those shopping centres. It had four floors and it sold everything uh, from food to fashions and it was open six days a week and we were lucky enough to get a stall in there and that progressed from one stall to three stalls and we then had ended up with about 14 stalls all across Yorkshire and we sold ladies hosiery and then we sold ladies fashions. And at that time, so I would say I was in the fashion business. And by the time we had 14 stores, we had quite big buying power. And I would go to London uh, with my my former husband, David, we were partners together. We'd go to London we'd buy a lot of fashions because we had quite a big mouth to feed. And our distribution center was positioned in the fashion area of Leeds. And so um, I'd bring the goods back and suddenly, people would walk in and say, do you sell these goods? And I'm always a person that I always say yes, so I have to say no. And I thought, well, so I said yes. So I ended up with my 14 shops and I opened a wholesale business because it simply meant buying more of the same. Right. So I ended up with a wholesale business. And then one day I was by. By that time with 14 shops and quite a thriving wholesale business, I had quite a lot of buying power. I could buy maybe two and a half thousand of a style. My passion uh, through my life has been fashion and style. And even when I've left the fashion business, it's gone on to homes. Anyway, um, I, met, I met up with a Chinese guy who used to supply me. And he said to me, why don't you go to Hong Kong, Linda? Because I was buying quite a lot of stuff. And he said, I've got a very good friend and he is a quota holder and a supplier. For Freeman's Mail Order, but Freeman's Mail Order have just opened their own office in Hong Kong, and he's looking for a he's looking for a customer, and he's got the quota. He's also an exporter and he's a financier. And I, my passion has been knitwear my whole life, and I never ever bought the knitwear that in my head I could design. You know, I could I always wanted to sort of do very pretty fancy knitwear. So I went to Hong Kong because I knew that with my 14 shop stroke stalls and a wholesale business, I could buy two and a half, three thousand of a style. So I thought, well, I haven't got a lot to lose. I'm gonna to go to Hong Kong. I went to Hong Kong and I met this gentleman And he said to me, I will supply you the quota and I will also finance you because when you become an importer, you have to have a big line of credit because you need to open letters of credit and you need to open letters of credit well before the goods are shipped. And then the goods are shipped. uh, So in order to really thrive, you have to have someone financing. And he said to me, I will finance you uh, and I will open the letters of credit. so. Off I went and I, he said, I'm going to take you around all these different factories. I went around all these factories and I looked at goods being made for America, goods being made for Canada, goods being made for all over the world. And I would see designs that I liked and I would modify them to fit what I thought was my customer base. But everything, because I always tell people in, when I'm, when, I'm, when I'm mentoring, you need a USP, you know, some unique selling point. I decided to set me apart. I wanted to focus on pretty feminine knitwear and tops and t-shirts. So I put a range together. By the time I'd been there 10 days, I'd gone to all these factories and I'd put a range together, which was all a very similar handwriting. It was flowers, it was embroidery, it was feminine, it was pretty. And I bought 3,000 of a style, 2,500 of a style. And I was in a taxi, and I thought, you know, I think I need to make this a brand. So through my through my journey, I've never really planned what I'm going to do. I, as I've gone along, I've ste- I've fallen into it, right? Not fallen into it, but thought my way into it. So I thought, I think this should have a brand name. Um, I didn't really at that time think I would become one of the biggest importers in the country, but I knew that it needed a brand. It needed an identification. I thought, well, it's feminine. It's pretty. It needs a pretty name. And so I thought of honeysuckle. And um, in Hong Kong, it's very easy to get. I quickly had some labels. I I went to a graphic company. They drew up labels, everything the design for me. And so by the end of my trip, I had a range and I had a brand. Um, And, I came back to England and I hung the samples up in my Leeds warehouse and as I hung them up everyone's going when is that coming in when can we get that when can we get that and truthfully by the time the first goods arrived I'd pre-sold everything wow so I kind of knew that I was onto something that you know could be good. And um, as the goods were arriving, I had to go out for my next trip because you have to work six months ahead. I had no designers. So I went out for the next trip. And uh, the agent said to me, we, you, we're we going to do knitwear now, Linda. So knitwear, you can't do much in Hong Kong. We have to go to Korea and Taiwan. I'd never been to Korea. I said, Korea? He said, "Yes, yeah, Seoul. He said, because they have a lot of quota and they're just opening new factories and we need to go. So, you know, I'm always, I'm adventurous. I've been adventurous and game for stuff all my life because, you know, I've got a motto. If you don't buy a ticket, you're never going to win the lottery, are you? So you've got to have a go. And I still say that today and I still believe that today. Um, so off I went to Korea. Actually, nothing had prepared me for Seoul Korea all those years ago. curfew one hotel <laughs> <laughs> and most of all they don't like women <laughs> they don't like women there
0: date wise what sort of time are we looking at here early 90s
1: late uh, 80s no, no 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 late no 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 late 70s all oh, right okay oh wow okay late 70s yeah late 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 70s so I get to Seoul and uh, I do the same thing. I go around the factories and they're making knitwear for all over the world. And I see lots of, lots of knitwear and it's very, very cheap. I mean, some of the first basic knitwear I bought was $16 a dozen. Um, and that was when the, pound with my, when the dollar might've been two to the pound, just to give you an idea how cheap it was. And anyway, I started to put this knitwear range together And I walk into a factory and I see, because it's, people say, you know, have there been major turning points in your life, in your career? And I think one of this, this what I'm about to tell you is probably one of of the turning points for me. So I walk into this factory and I see hung up the most amazing sweaters. To be honest, if I saw them today, I'd love them. They had embroidery and velvet ribbons and diamante. They were everything one I could want and they were beautiful and so I said to the factory owner I want to buy these sweaters he said oh no you can't have these sweaters I said why he said well they're for an American designer called Maria Kim and they're for her So I said, well, I don't want them from America. I'm from England, you know. I'm from England. I want them for England. He said, no, no, you can't have them. I said, well, what do you mean? Because I'm quite persistent if I want something. I said, what do you mean I can't have them? So he said, well, you know, I said, well, is there anyone here who can give me authority to get them? So he said, well, her husband is here, Namho. So I said, well, let me meet him, you know. And he went, oh, no, I don't know, because obviously, you know, Women really were just, you know, I don't know if he'll meet you. I said, of course he'll meet me. Let me meet him. And my luck that there was one hotel in Seoul. He was staying in it. Anyway, after I drove the factory owner mad, Nam Ho Kim arranged to meet me in the hotel. He said, he'll give you half an hour at breakfast. I thought, bloody hell, I've got half an hour to tell to persuade this guy to sell me these sweaters. So I thought, well... I think the best way is to be honest, and I, I really think that. So I met him, and I said, look, I want to be very honest with you. I'm not the biggest importer in the world. I'm quite a new importer, but I think I've got potential. I'm not going to tell you I'm going to buy hundreds of thousands, but I'd like to have a go, and I'd like to buy your sweaters for England. And he said, and so I said, I can't deliver dinner at breakfast, but I think I could do okay. Anyway, I struck up a kind of, he kind of liked me because I was honest. And he said to me, okay. And he, he told me a commission that he wanted for the sweaters. And I didn't argue. I said, okay, I'll give you that. I think it was 15, 12%, something like that per sweater, which was quite a lot. But the, I thought I've got to get them. I said, but look, let's do this. If I buy X, I'll give you what you're asking. If I buy Y, let's reduce it. If I buy Z, let's reduce it more. So anyway, he, I walked, oh, after half an hour, I got an agreement from him that if I bought, I said, right now I can buy 30,000 pieces and I'll give you whatever it was. I can't quite remember, 12%, 11%. But I took it right down to 3%. I didn't know. And as he was walking out, I said, by the way, can I have Europe? I had no customers <laughs> in Europe. But I thought, well, as I'm asking... As I've got, as we say, chutzpah, I'll ask him for that. Anyway, he did the agreement and I took this range of sweaters. I modified it for England. And that, along with more sweaters that I bought, but all following my theme of flowers and embroidery and hand knits and everything else, I brought the range, I brought the range back to England. And I realised at that time, I thought, you know what? I think I'd better show, I think this is too good to just leave in Leeds. i better get into a fashion fair in London and now show my, my, get a stand. I had a tiny little stand, but I had my name on it and I had the sweaters on it. And you know how they say you can drown in failure, you can drown in success. I had every major retailer in the country on this stand. It was unbelievable. I And not only did I have... Eight people from England. I had Holland, I had Germany. I, I thought, oh my God. And the story is I finished up buying 385,000 of that line alone, of those sweaters from, wow. from that guy. And that was, it was life changing because immediately after the show, I opened a showroom in London because I realized I had to have representation in London. And that's really the launch of Honeysuckle. That's how we started, and then we went from strength to strength until I got to a phone call one day and saying, um, "Would you like to sell your business?"
0: So it was. So it wasn't for sale.
1: It was never for. sale. It was sale. just
0: somebody proactively contacted you and said, "Do
1: it was you want never to sell?" For sale. And I have to say that my former husband David was more aggressive about wanting to sell. Anyway. This company called up, called Brown and Jackson, we went to London to see them, and they had 20 other companies, public, 20 other companies, they said, look, we're interested in your profits, we won't interfere with you, you'll come to two board meetings a year, you'll give us your profit forecast, you can carry on. Because my whole thing was, I have to be able to run my ship. I don't want anyone telling me what to do. I, you know, and that's what I was afraid of. But you know, I'd come up from very, very humble beginnings, probably poorer beginnings than anybody I know. And I won't say that the money wasn't nice, it was nice. Uh, you know, to have nothing and to start to earn money. And um, to be offered in those days, you know, what was a substantial sum then. And my former husband said, we should sell, we should sell. And to be honest, I thought, well, I'm the business really, you know, so they can't buy me, they can buy me temporarily. So we agreed to sell to them. And I I suppose you could say that, you know, I I, I became a millionaire and that was something that I'd never dreamed of. And true enough to their word, they completely left me alone. I just went twice a year for board meetings and they just used to ask for a profit forecast and it all went swimmingly well for 19 months. And then we get a call. I get it. We get a call and say, oh, can you come to London? Yeah. okay. So um, what's happened? Well, we bought an insurance company called AutoGuard and it kind of dragged them down and we can't, we're going under. So do you want your business back, basically? So, um, well, my former husband, he sort of didn't really want to take it back. But I thought, I'm 32 or oh, 31. What am I going to do? I'm not going to retire. I'm still not retired or not totally retired. So... There we were, under two years later, sort of having your cake and eating it. And we took the business back. I took the business back. I left the retail completely and only concentrated on the importing business. Closed the wholesale, everything just concentrated on Honeysuckle and took it back. And carried on running it. Had a showroom in Leeds, showroom, in, showroom and warehouse in Leeds, showroom in Manchester, showroom in London. Because in those days it's different today. There were many small traders, many market traders, many small shops. We would open on a Friday night and a Sunday morning. They'd be queuing, queuing. We had, you know, cash and carries and we did sell to the stores, but we had so many small traders. And, and I and in the end, um, I opened an office in Hong Kong and I sold my goods I sold my designs, so you have to jump forward. I ended up in the beginning. I started on my own, but I employed a designer who stayed with me eighteen years. She became my chief designer. I ended up with six more. I had a big design team in the end. And then when I started selling my designs worldwide, I also opened an office in Amsterdam to distribute to Europe.
0: Fantastic!
1: And um, that's 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 what I did until. Uh,
0: what would you I mean, until
1: we floated that's another story
0: well we'll come on to, we'll come on to the float in a minute um what would you say i mean i I know you advise um entrepreneurs now and you've got the Linda plant academy what would you say are the key business lessons you learned from that journey and and that you pass on or you recommend to other people to people who are listening today
1: well I think you've got to persevere because not everything is smooth running. So perseverance is very, very important. You know, you can't, and if you get a problem, you can't bite your whole problem off all at once. You know, you've got to take things a bit at a time. I think, you know, and I and I think in business it's quite important, especially in the fashion business, to have an identity. I don't believe in any business you can be jack of all trades and master of none. You should focus on what's your particular niches. My niche was pretty feminine knitwear. That's what I bought into. And I think in, you know, whatever business you're doing, you've got to, you should have a focus. And my expertise is in trading businesses. Now, whether that's sweaters, whether that's TVs or microwaves, whether it's multi-million pound houses, it's the same principle you're trading. And I, and I believe there's two things very, very important in business. Relationships very important to preserve your relationships they they are vital for you the relationships with the suppliers the relationships with your customers and the art of negotiating and I think and many people in business know this you know when you're negotiating you've both got to leave the table a little bit unhappy um, because you always want to be able to come back and negotiate another day so you might not get everything you want and they might not get everything they want So I would say those are key things, key elements in business. But I'm very, very keen on relationships because that has been a staple throughout my business life, through the knitwear business, through the electronics business, through the property business. My relationships are very important. And of course, your reputation. But then your relationships go hand in hand with your reputation. So my relationships with my customers and my suppliers, both important.
0: You mentioned, you mentioned earlier on your, your sort of sliding doors moment, and I, I had a big sliding doors moment in my career. How much would you say that sliding doors or other moments were, were luck or good fortune or just right place at the right time or just one of those things?
1: You need a bit of luck, but opportunities come along, don't they? And it's when you can seize those opportunities, when you can recognise this might be an opportunity. It might not be, but it might be an opportunity. So I always say, look, nothing is just pure luck. You need Look, you, it's nice to have a, you need a bit of luck, but I think you need to seize those opportunities and you need to recognise what could be an opportunity. Maybe it isn't, but maybe it is. So I've always like seized everything. So I think I don't say I've I don't say I've been lucky. I say I've seized opportunities and I've said yes until I've had to say no because if you say no straight away, you're going nowhere. If you say yes, you might go nowhere, but at least you're getting a chance.
0: Yeah, sounds good. Sounds good. So.
1: So that's been that's really been my man.
0: So tell us about floating on the stock market. How did that come about?
1: Well, again. <laughs> I can't say that I was instrumental in 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 in, in initially floating. Anita Roddick danced across the um, a stock exchange floor. I mean, remember when I was at the forefront of business, women were not at the forefront of business. It's a different time today. Anita Roddick, and she got a lot of publicity, and it was fashionable, and it was new. And a company approached us, um, and they they you know they said. Uh, do you want to float? And again, I don't know. My 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 uh, husband said, you know, this is a good idea. And I met with the stockbrokers and they felt that it would be uh, successful to float and we could retain the majority of business, sell some shares. And again, um, I don't know if I was cut out for public company life, but I thought, well, as long as I can run my business. And of course, I would... You know, I was exciting to them because when you've taken a business from a market stall to the stock market, that's quite a good story. And you're a woman and you haven't got a single qualification to your name. That's still a good story today because I'm still trading on that story today. Um, But I've got a lot of experience. So it was a good story. And, you know, I was something different. So when these stockbrokers and the, the people doing the quotation would ask me, what's your success? And I would say, you know, you know, how do you think what, you know, what's given you this, the, the background? And I'd say, well, have you ever stood on a market stall? Because if you stood on a market stall, that gives you all the, all you need if you want to be in a trading business, it really teaches you. And i and that's, you know, and I would say to anyone, the markets and, you know, Alan Sugar started selling TVs or out of the back of a van. A lot of people started like, well, Marks and Spencer started on the market. So I would say, well, I'm not educated. I haven't got qualifications, but I'm streetwise and I'm educated in, in life and you know, I've been on the market stall, I know how to trade. Right. I know how to trade. And I don't and I think, you know, when you know how to trade in all various commodities, whether you're trading a multi million pound house or a sweater, it's the same thing. You're buying, you're selling, you're dealing. So and then and so we floated. We floated our business. Fantastic. And um yeah.
0: And when when was that? When was that?
1: That was in the uh, that was in the eighties. Oh right, I can't remember exactly the date, right. but we I, I should not know. But we floated in the eight we floated in the eighties, and it was all going quite well. Um, and then along came a company, and they and and I I I stayed in the fashion business for over twenty five years, and I was living I was going to Hong Kong, basing myself in the Far East for six weeks, every six weeks. So that was a hell of a lot of traveling, flying around all the Far East. I didn't just go to Hong Kong. I was going to Bangladesh, I was going to India. My base was Hong Kong, but I I was buying and designing all around the Far East because I had quite you know, I had a big business, and, and new markets pop up. And when bang, when the quota got difficult in Korea, Bangladesh came on, and then had to go to Bangladesh. All these things, and then a company approached us um, who wanted to take over the the wanted to, to 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 use the public company. And I was sort of ready. I was ready. I never really wanted to retire, but you know, I'd I really felt that. My, li- my life went through a personal change. I had a baby and I got a divorce all at the same time. And I decided to move to London. And I really felt, although I still love the fashion business, I didn't. When I had my third child, because I have two older sons, when I had my third child, I wanted to change my life. I didn't want to be away all the time. And this seemed an opportunity and, and, um, this company approached us. It was a company called Porterbrook, and they said, "Look, we want to really take over." They really wanted to, to not take over the fashion business. They wanted to take over the the public company, but they said they said, "Look," um, so they said, "Look, we'll you can stay on uh, for a short time until we until we." use use the public listing and they said oh it'll probably be about 6 months and anyway um we did a deal and I was on I was on the board and the first so they had to kind of they wanted to taper down all the knitwear and all the stock so the first board meeting I went to which was about 8 weeks after we did the deal um they said oh well we we've sold out of the knitwear we need to get more we need to get more stock we'll, and these were all these these were all fishy jens. I Had no idea. So they said, "Well, you know, what are we going to do to get more stock? We're going to go to Hong Kong and get more stock." I said, "I don't think you can. You can't just go to Hong Kong and get more stock. It doesn't work like that." So they said, "So they said, oh, anyway, they didn't like this. You better go on garden leave for. You better go on. Gar- they put me on garden leave. They said you'll be on garden leave now. I by that time, I, I had to say goodbye to my business because I could see they didn't know what they were doing, and I was going to get so they I was going to get very upset. They put me on garden leave. Um, they said, right, you'll be on ma- maximum six months. Three years later, I was still on garden leave with a chauffeur <laughs> and a big wage doing doing nothing. <laughs> and every so often they say, oh, we need to renew, we need to renew, we need to renew. <laughs> and I let them renew about three, two or three times. Then the fourth time, I said... Well, if you you want to renew, I want some more money and I want to get rid of the non-compete clause. I didn't have any intention to go back in the business. I said, I want to be free to do what I want now. I've been on garden. I've just been, well, I was living in London. I actually started to dabble in the property business. Um, And so three years I stayed on garden leave on full salary with a chauffeur. It's very nice.
0: That's not bad at all, is it?
1: No and and I got and I got we got a second payout at the at the end because they wanted more they wanted extensions all the time.
0: Getting out of the business then yeah. was the right time for you.
1: Yeah, it was. It was. It was, you know, it had been fantastic and but you know, your life changes, personal situations change. I was living in London, I had a ba- I had a small child, and I just didn't want to travel around the world anymore. So That's how my life changed.
0: Obviously, everybody who's listening and watching is desperate for me to ask you some questions about The Apprentice. But before we do, I've got a short message to read. So bear with me. I'm introducing the Leeds Business Podcast Gentlemen's Agreement and Ladies. So it's a a simple agreement. My half of the agreement is every week I bring everybody inspiring Leeds Business people for them to listen to and watch for free. The other side of the gentleman's agreement, the listener's side of the agreement, is they have three things to do. Number one, they have to share this podcast with one person that they think it will get value from it. They have to post a review of the show at either Apple Podcasts or Podchaser, and they have to give this episode a like. That's it. Fair deal. I do the interviews. They do the liking and sharing. Linda, do you think they should post a review and like this show?
1: I do. I do. I absolutely do think they should I hope they will there you go (laughs) because I'm not really the Queen of Mean as you can see (laughs)
0: right let's get on to the Queen of Mean then so how did you end up on The Apprentice
1: ah so I met Alan Sugar when I was in the fashion business I met him because Alan was had Amstrad and he would travel to the Far East. He'd be in Korea a lot. I was in Korea half my life, Korea and Hong Kong. He was there a lot. And I didn't really socialize with him, but I knew him. I knew him. And we'd taken a few plane journeys together. I'd gone to a couple of charities of his in London. I knew his wife. And that's when I met him. Um, fast forward I don't know, 20 years. Um, Alan lives in Florida. And I have, Alan lives in Florida. He's there six months here. I have a home in Florida and I have a son who lives in Florida. And Alan is friendly with my son. And Alan phoned me up one day and he said, I need a new interviewer for The Apprentice. He said, I need someone who's going to dig deep and expose weaknesses. Can you do it? <laughs> and I, I always say yes, I have to say now. I've no idea if I could do it. I'd never been on television. I'd never had no idea. But I said, Well, I don't know, but I'll have a go. He said, Right. And he sent me he sent me a couple of pod, he sent me a couple of tapes of uh, Paul Kemsley, who I sort of took over from. And he said, Right, look, this is the kind type of thing I'm looking for. I'll fix you up with Fremantle and the BBC and you can have an audition. I said, Okay. And they sent me a mock business plan to read and then my audition with a mock candidate was to do an interview and I go along and truthfully um I was quite nervous till I started the interview. And once I started the interview, I'd forgotten about the cameras because I really got into the interview. <laughs> and at the end of the audition, you know, I thought I'd done quite well because the the, uh, the, light, the people who were hosting the interview, she said to me, I'd like to introduce you to the producer of the show. So I thought that was a positive step. And, uh, and then I did. And then three weeks later, Alan called me and said, OK, we're going to have a go with you. You can do it. Don't let me down. And that was and uh that was nine years ago and I did my first show and um I knew I'd done well because the very next day was a full page in the telegraph and it said, Who is Linda Plant, the Queen of Mean, the new audition <laughs> on The Apprentice, the new the new interviewer? And uh that's how I became the Queen of Mean. And um I think I delivered Alan's brief. I'm still there nine years later, interviewing so um, and it's and it's quite interest. It's quite interesting because although I do the show is I do the the interviews and then I do and the, that is the biggest watched episode the interviews yeah you know by far the biggest and the boardroom and then I do a couple of your fires but it amazes me the recognition it just amazes me the recognition that I have um, and also I, I think as I said to you the longevity of the show because it's coming up, we're in 17 years, um, because the bulk of the audience is 16 to 39. So it's youngsters and they love it and they keep on watching it. Um, and Alan is, I mean, Alan is fantastic on the show and how he is on the show is how he is in real life. He doesn't pull any punches. He doesn't take any BS. Just how he is, that's how he is. And he's great at the at, at hosting the show. <laughs>
0: So just, just a couple of things. And I know I, I watch the show regularly and yeah. um, Alan actually blocked me on Twitter because I was critical of the show once. Mm-hmm. Um, do, you think, do you think it sets a bad example to people getting into business? Because obviously the attitude of the applicants is all very, I have to stamp on everybody else to win. And that's obviously not the way business, business
1: goes. No, I don't think so. Because I think if you actually watch the show and you watch the episodes leading up to the interview... They have, they, you know, to get to the final five, they go through quite a lot, there's quite a lot of, um, there's, there's quite a lot of, um. what's the word I'm looking for, it's gone out of my head, uh, tasks, there's quite a lot of tasks that they have to go through, and those tasks involve all kinds of things, negotiation and all kinds of things that they have to do, so I think they, um, I I don't think, look, it's a TV show and reality TV is always TV first, you know. Yes. So to make the good TV, don't forget that show is edited and it's edited for the audience. So you're not seeing everything that happens. No, I don't feel, I think actually what you don't see is there's a lot of camaraderie in the house. You know, it looks like they're all treading on each other's so toes. I don't think in business you have to tread on someone else's toes. But in this, this, in this, it's a it's it's a kind of competition, isn't it? So you've got to you've got to be the best. You've got to prove yourself all the time if you want to, if you want to get to be his assistant. So I think um, they have to show they really have to show to get to the final five that they're pretty good all rounders. Yeah, and of course, being reality TV, you've got to have a few personalities in there. But then you've got to have a personality in business as well. Maybe if you're in a tech business, etc. A little bit different but if you're in a trading business you know i i always say you'll never get anything bit you'll never get anything being nasty that you can't get being nice so you know i think that personality is quite important and in tv it's very important no one wants to see a, a load of nerds just saying yeah you know people want a bit of a bit of spice yeah and that's, what's, that's the way they edit the show. That's the way they splice it to make sure that people get that.
0: Before you do the interviews, have you seen the show or do you, do you see your applicants sort of blind, as it were, when you do the interviews?
1: I don't see the show because I'm doing... I'm doing the interviews six months, five months before the show. Right. So when I get, I get my final five only one week before. Now, the show has filmed all the episodes up to number 11. I don't get to see those because obviously they're not edited. But what I get is an overview of the final five candidates and how they've done in every task. So I will know if this person has as what, how many tasks they've won, how many tasks they've lost. I'll know that information, and I'll have a bit of an overview on how they've done in the task. And, of course, I get their CV. I get their application to the apprentice, which is quite a big application. and um, And then, of course, I get their business plan. I'm mainly concerned with their business plan, um of course i look at their cvs i look at their overviews but my main concern is their business plan uh whereas someone like claudine um who interviews she will look at them and she'll go on about how your mother's your mother played a role in your brother and your cousin i'm purely about the business plan right and is this going to be is this investable for, for 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 lord sugar
0: and in terms of the brief either from the, the show or from from lord sugar you know those those interviews i know they're edited they seem very very aggressive yeah is that what you're asked to do
1: well my role it my role is to be i'd like to say firm but fair right and so no again it's more interesting isn't it they're only aggressive i'm only I'm o- i'll only fit if you give me a business plan that's wreckable, I'll wreck it, you know. That's the whole thing. It's it you've got to give me something that I that doesn't have big gaping holes in it. So that's really I wouldn't say that I go out to be particularly mean or particularly aggressive, but if you bring a plan with no financials or you bring a plan and go, this is rubbish, you know, you make you've got a business making Twenty thousand this year, it's good. You're not gonna make one million next year. You're not. It's pipe dreams, you know. So these are the things that I pick up on. And amazingly enough, every year they seem to give me the fodder to you know, some years are worse than others, some candidates are worse than others.
0: What would you say again, you know, obviously people who are listening, they're in business, what would you say makes a good business plan? When you see them, which ones, you know, what's in them that makes you go, Oh, that's
1: good. Well, first of all, your idea. Is your idea good? Right. That's that's the first plan. Is it feasible? Is it good? Is it different? Then, you know, let me look at your financials. First of all, let's look at the pluses, the minuses, look at the whole plan. And then are you bringing financials? Are they realistic? I would say the worst thing about a lot of these plans is they're just not realistic. The idea might be good, but then they go off on, you know, tangents of not realistic because they think if they say they're going to make a million, it'll impress Alan. It won't. So I think a good business plan is good structure, a good story about your business, research, you know, and I always say, and I say this in interviews. If you if you if you don't know something it doesn't matter you know you can you can write down you need help or you can say you need help but uh, if you've got a good idea and you've got a well laid out business plan you're showing the strengths and weaknesses the competition all the things that are important and you're really showing that you understand what you're talking about because you've got to do research if you want to start a new business you've got to do research who's your competition are they good? Are they bad? What's the prices like? You know, you've got to come to you. You've got to know about your business. You might not know everything, but you've got to have a good amount of knowledge about your business. And so it's got to be well laid out, well structured. It's got to have financials in. It's got to have a growth plan. It's got to show, is it scalable? Because especially if you're looking for an investment, is this scalable? Is it a scalable business? Some business is just not scalable, you know. And, and, and the growth has got to be structured and sensible, not 20 grand today and one million next year. And how are you going to do it? I uh, don't know. You know, or, you know, you're not going to do it because you're not going to do that and you're not going to do that. And that's time and time again. You know, you're a mobile disco. You're not going to be an international party planner next year look ambition is great you've got to have an ambitious and you've got to have dreams and aspirations but it's got to be tempered with a growth plan and is your business scalable to start with
0: people often say this but does has sir alan picked sorry lord sugar picked which one he wants before you what we see as, you know the last two no has he sort of given you a heads up oh, i like that one i don't like that one
1: no so he doesn't So all the candidates put in their business plan at the beginning, all 16. And there is someone from Fremantle, I believe, who looks at them, but Alan doesn't see them until you get to the final five. He then looks at them. So really and truthfully, they're supposed to, the two guys who do it for Fremantle, I think are supposed to, you know, gone through them a bit and scrutinise them a bit. I don't know that to me. I think they must be a bit blind because I wouldn't, some of these business plans I wouldn't, let in but no so alan sees them pretty much when we see them you know and usually it's not difficult to spot who's going to be the winner
0: yeah yeah
1: and sometimes he'll phone up and say you know what do you think about this one or go easy on that one because i think that one you know but at the end of the day no he he we do the interviews and the next day we we have a board meeting and with him and then it's kind of discussed who's good who's not good the what the strengths the weaknesses etc cetera, et cetera.
0: how long do you do the interview for because we see maybe 2 or 3 minutes of you
1: no yeah but each interview is 30 minutes and it's one take no editing uh, no 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 stopping it's one take for 30 minutes and then it's edited afterwards So 25 to 30 minutes each interview. Wow. Which is quite long. But then you need that amount of time if you're going to get into all the questions and, you know, talk about the business. Because some of the business plans can be 90 pages. Yeah, yeah. You might want to throw 85 of them in the dustbin, but you've got to read them all.
0: (laughs) Fantastic. That's fascinating. Really, really fascinating. Um, Now, one of the big sections or one of the regular sections we have on the leads business podcast is we ask our guests to do a how to and we discussed this before and we thought because of what you do on the show you would do a how to run an interview
1: yeah
0: as a manager rather than being you know often often um you see people doing how to as the interviewee yeah so yeah with your expertise give us a give us five minutes how to to be a good interviewer rather than interviewee as a manager or owner of a business?
1: Well, obviously, I think, first of all, when you're interviewing someone for a job, when I was interviewing for the fashion business, you know, the first thing I would do is look at how the person coming for the job, how the applicant looked, because if someone's coming for a fashion business, then I think they need to look well put together. They need to look like they know how to put things together. If you come in looking wrong, you know, to me, uh, that's already a bad sign. Before I've looked at your CV, before I've looked at your portfolio. I think it's important as well. Look, I always look, I think people should be well presented. I like people who look you in the eye. I like people who can say to me, I can't do that. I don't know how to do that. But I want to learn. So I'm always looking for people that have got potential. They might not, they might not know today, but you can see if a person, you know, is hungry, if they've got potential, I can't bear anyone that comes in, and the first question they say is how much holiday that, do I get? Or how many hours work? You know, I'm that's not my ethos. So um I'm always looking for people who are enthusiastic, who come, I'm always looking for potential and that comes in many ways. It might come if I'm interviewing for a fashion business, it might come in their portfolio, but often it comes in the personality of the person you know, you can gel with a person or not gel because I can tell quickly if I'm doing an interview. Obviously, the apprentice is slightly different because I've just got five people and I've got a business plan in front of me. But I think when you're interviewing, you can look at a person. Do you gel with that person? Can you see the personality? Can you see the vibe? Are they hungry? Are they ambitious? Are they going to be good for the job? There's a lot of components to be good for the job. If they can't do it, I don't mind if you tell me I want to learn it, or have you got potential? So to be a good interviewer, I think you've got to feel the person. You know, it, it, there's a lot of gut feel in life. Do you not think? Do you not think that I've had a lot of gut feel in my life for so many things? And truthfully, you know, when I became an interviewer on The Apprentice, I'd interviewed many people for my pa- fashion business. And uh, then as I went into, I ended up with an interior design business, which isn't that far away from the fashion business. As I said, it's style, it's fashion. But I'm looking I'm looking for the potential in the person. I'm looking at, do I vibe with the person? Because as a boss in those kind of businesses, I had quite a close relationship. And also, you know, when I had the fashion, is, are these people, can they you know, will they be able to delegate one day? Can I delegate to them? I know this sounds ridiculous. Do you know how many people lack common sense? It's unbelievable how many people, of course, I'm looking, are they qualified? But I'm looking much further than that. Are they qualified? But I'm very, very interested in the person. I think a lot of people, you know, you can go on gut feel. Sometimes someone might be less qualified, but Can they learn? Have they got potential? And depending on the job you're looking for. So like I said, if you're going, if you, you know, an experience is also something that you're that you're looking for. But it's not necessarily crucial experience. Again, going back to if they've got potential, are they bright? Can they adapt? Because in life, as we've seen in the pandemic, can a person adapt? Can they pivot? Because you have to pivot in business you have to. You know, you always have to adapt. With or without a pandemic, I've had to adapt and pivot my whole business life because you have to. You get down times, you get problem times. I've gone through three horrendous times. I started my business off with a with a minor strike. I had to trade in the dark. And then I went through a, I went through a time when we had a horrendous Pound situation and suddenly the currency fluctuated and that's where my relationships came in because I couldn't put my goods up 30% but I also couldn't pay the prices you know and then in 2008 the property business when the wheel came off owed HSBC 100 million pounds you've got to you've got to know how to negotiate and how to talk and how to be honest I I think that's very very important. Can a person have they got common sense? Can they pivot? Can they? How and are they going to collapse at the first? You know, are they going to collapse at the first problem? Because you can't collapse in business. You've got to regroup yourself, pick yourself up, and go on. So those are all the things that you look for and it may not be you may not be interviewing a boss you may be, but you have to look for traits of the traits in a person I think.
0: How, is it is there any way
1: Would you agree with
0: that? Oh absolutely absolutely and and I I always be, I've always believed in in you know get the people on the bus then find them a seat which is your potential that you were talking about. Yeah. As well as gut feeling. How do you sort of extract that sort of information from somebody that you think they're going to be flexible that they're going to be able to negotiate that they aren't going to collapse how as an interviewer how would you try and get that out of somebody
1: well you can't get everything at the beginning so a lot of it you have to think you have to you know think well I think they're good but you don't know but I I would give them scenarios and I, of course when I was interviewing for the fashion business you know I used to sort of tell them, you know, Hong Kong is not a holiday. It's hard work, very hard work. And, and in certain times I would, you know, I would let the designers have to give them a trial to see how quick they could work, et cetera, et cetera. So I think you you talk a lot. I think it's quite important to talk outside the, into, to talk outside the actual job application about them and and you just have to assess if you think you know you ask them about their history and about their you look at their you look at their previous experience how long have they stayed in a job how did they you know what kind of references and and how 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 did they adapt You know, you have look. You have to just be able to do that. You have to be able to interview, and you have to be able to extract what you're needing from that interview. And that comes not just asking, "Can you draw a sweater?" or "Can you do this?" It's finding out more about them. And then again, as you say, look, you know, I've taken people on that I thought I've taken people on. I didn't know how a job for them. I thought they're too good to let go. I'm going to find them a position because sometimes you just. You know, yeah. I mean, I was a very good boss. My staff never left me, but I was firm, but fair, you know, and I lay my cards on the table. I'm very frank. I'm very honest, right? And I, and, and I believe that's important. And also the thing is, as a boss, you've got to respect is everything. You've got to gain their respect if you want them to work for you and really make things work. You've got to, they've got to respect you and I always I was not a boss that sat around and said, you do this, you do this, you do this. I delegated, but I would do I could do it myself. I when I went to Hong Kong, I worked longer hours than them. But I always I always believe in reward as well. So if someone, and I think that's quite good, because if you get bright people, they don't just want to be stuck. You know, if a person doesn't ask, you know, what's my potential here? What can I get to? So I, I like people that are hungry and that want to grow. And I, you see that in a person when you're interviewing. You see a lot of things. You see a lot more than just this, than just the portfolio or a CV that's in front of you, because you're seeing the person. And you know, so a lot of it is your gut feel, but if you're running a business already, you'll know what you're looking for.
0: Absolutely right, absolutely right. And and people do get hung up on what's on my C V, have I got the experience? And actually there's there's so much stuff that people bring that like you said, enthusiasm, work ethic, all common sense, all those things you can't train in people.
1: And potential and and potential. Yep. Yeah but you on an interview you can get so much more than just what you see just the pictures they draw the CV they bring you see you 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 interview them as well as you know yeah reading their CV or reading their well you don't get a business plan when you're interviewing yourself for your company do you but you still need to exactly. look for the look at the people and sometimes even on the apprentice I might look at a business plan and form an opinion when I meet the candidate I think different right but I have to go on the business because it's an investment
0: <laughs> so one last question for you Linda lots of people listening run their own businesses or, or want to run a business yeah. what would your one piece of advice be for a business person
1: persevere
0: persevere back to the perseverance I think,
1: I think well I think per- persevere don't give up don't don't give up on your dream um, you know I think I think I'm living proof that yes, yes, you can do it. Yes, you can do it. If you have got the will and the perseverance and, of course, a little bit of knowledge and a little bit of an idea... Don't be afraid. Don't be afraid to have a go. Because what's the worst thing that can happen? You fail. And if you fail it's, if you fail on this, it might be a lesson to succeed on the next one. I agree. You know, and we're always learning. We're always learning. So persevere, don't give up and have a go. Because if you don't buy a ticket, you're never going to win the lottery.
0: On that note, I will say a huge thank you very much to the Queen of, the queen of Niceness, not the Queen of Mean. Linda, thank you very much indeed.
1: Thank you, Phil. Thank you very much. It's been a pleasure. I hope people listen to it and have said something that's useful to people. (laughs) Thanks very much.
0: Thanks for listening to this episode. I hope you found it both interesting and of use. To make sure you don't miss any future episodes, please subscribe to the show. Go on, do it now. Do it now before you go off and do something else. Much appreciated. Oh, and don't forget our gentleman's agreement. See you next week.